0: You know, um, I turned 30 this year. And that is awful. It's only bad news. And someone just scoffed in the room because they're like, oh, 30, that's young. I hear you, right? But some 20-year-olds going 30, that, are you, is that technically a senior citizen? Like, I don't know, you know, how old is that? And, and I, you know, I don't know if I'm young or old, maybe I'm right in the middle. All I know is my body hurts more now than it did five years ago. So I know I'm getting older. And as I'm getting older, I try, I attempt, to stay young in my vernacular, my, vo- my vocabulary. I think vernacular means vocabulary. Not sure, Google it. But I'm trying to stay young in my vocabulary, right? And so, uh, you know, on social media, I've seen this phrase and I've heard it in some music. And uh, you may not have heard it before. Um, it's this phrase, no cap. I'm sure a lot of youth pastors are trying to put it into their sermons right now, but, uh, but you may not be familiar with it. So this word, no cap, you can parallel it maybe with the phrase nonfiction. So you know when a book is nonfiction, it means it's true, which is kind of weird because the word like non just makes you think it's fake, but nonfiction means true. Well, in the same way, no cap means I'm telling the truth right now. So, example, me and my buddy, hey, I bet I'm better than you at basketball. And then I might respond and going, no cap, I'll beat you by 30. What I'm saying is, I'm not kidding, right? These aren't just my words. And this is like a thing that's being said in maybe a younger generation. And what it's saying is, hey, I'm not just saying this, all right? I'm really living this. It's kind of expressing this value, right? This intrinsic value that it's really not that cool if you just say something and you don't mean it. Like when your life and your message are two different things, that's not very respectable. Like we see this in some of the the angst, the the cries for social justice. A a group of people going, uh, a whole lot of people going, we don't want to just talk about change, right? We want to see it. Because I believe this is like this universal truth that, that when there is a divide, between our life and our message, that's not okay. It makes us uncomfortable. Like when we see someone and they preach a lot, but they don't live into what they preach, that frustrates us. And I believe that that angst that we feel when people have a message and a life that are two different things, that internal discomfort we feel, that's a God-given discomfort that God created us and He did not create us to have one life and one message for those to be two different realities, but instead that our life and our message would be one and the same. God has made us for that. And James is talking to a group of believers going, hey, I need to help you here because I'm seeing something and it's a real tension. There's a disconnect in what you profess to believe and how you're living your life. And I need to help you understand that. And as I said earlier, the invitation of this text is there is more. And so to the believer who follows Jesus and the person who's not sure God is real, I believe this message is for you. There is more at the table in your walk with Jesus. And so first, just to give us a little context in verses uh, 1 through 13, you might notice that we skipped that. So James, in the first 13 verses of chapter 2, actually, let me step back. Reminder, James is the half-brother of Jesus. If you remember, that's why we're in the book of James. He's the half-brother of Jesus, and he's writing to the church. That started in Jerusalem. It was like thriving and growing, getting bigger, and it was beautiful. But then persecution came, and it scattered the church. And so James is writing to the church scattered, going, hey, as we're separated, as we can't just come together and have an awesome Sunday gathering, we relate to that, right? Um, I want you to remember a few really, really important things. So that's where we're at. And in verses one through 13 of chapter two, James is writing to Christians going, hey, I'm hearing of some things. You're showing partiality to the rich over the poor. You're showing favoritism, and you can't do that. Like, you have to remember what my brother said. Like, we used to share bunk beds. I'm really familiar with what he used to say. Like, you have to remember, he told us, man, the gospel of Jesus, it does not show favoritism. It is for anyone willing to take it, anyone willing to submit their life, it's for them. And in fact, if you really remember what Jesus said, he told you to, like, specifically care for the poor. Treat them as guests of honor. And so verses 1 through 13, he's going, hey, you can't profess to believe in Jesus and show favoritism to the rich over the poor. That's not how this works. But in verses 14 through 26, he's zooming out. He's going, here's the bigger picture, okay? Here's the bigger issue here. We were meant for our lives and our message to be one and the same. There wasn't supposed to be a gap in between. us. let's talk about that for a little bit. Now, as we look through verses 14 through 26, I want to make sure you don't take away something from this text maybe growing up if you grew up in a christian background you might have heard this passage used to make you really nervous about your salvation where it says faith without works is dead and so you'd sit there like i would in my prayer life and go oh my goodness i don't feel like i've been super obedient this week am i unsaved (laughs) right like like that was the question and so this message like i received it with like kind of fear and trembling now while i'll say this If you go, man, I don't really care about the words of Jesus and I'm never obedient, it might be a good time to ask yourself, am I actually a follower of Jesus? That's a good question to ask. But James, too, is not trying to get at that. James is trying to show you there's more. He's going, hey, faith without works is dead. In other words, it's useless. It's dormant, like what's the point of just believing and not living out what you believe? That's what he's trying to help us feel. So as we go through this passage, if you left feeling super insecure and anxious and going, wait, am I not doing enough? I think you'd be missing the point. James is trying to say there's more on the table for you and your faith journey with Jesus. That's what he's trying to get the point across. So let's look at verses 14 through 17. And uh, I don't really have names for my points, um, but I call this in my notes a conundrum. So verses 14 through 17, James is going to highlight a conundrum where there's this divide between your message and your life. It says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, or wait, hold on, I lost my place, oh, uh, oh, go in peace, be warm and filled, I'm back, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And so James is pointing out an obvious tension here. Like if you see someone who's cold and you say, hey, listen, I see how cold you are. And from the bottom of my heart, be warm. It's like how ridiculous is that moment, right? He's trying to be elementary here. Like picture how weird that is. Or if you see someone who's hungry and going, hey, with all my heart, with all my good intentions, have dinner in your belly right now. Be full. Be full. It's like, that doesn't do anything, right? Like if you just say something and you don't live into anything, nothing really happens. And he's wanting to feel the absurdity of that concept, right? It makes me think about when I worked at a place called All Red Motors, um, which sold out. Um, Hey Keith, love you, thanks for that job. And I worked at a car lot, I'd wash cars and, and change the big car lot sign. If you've ever wondered who changes those signs on the side of the road, it was me on a pickup truck with a ladder, changing the letters out in 30-degree weather. Anyway, so I worked with this, that has nothing to do with what I'm saying. I worked with this guy named Ed. He's in his 60s or 70s. He's this real Southern guy, and I'm not gonna try to impersonate him, but he would look at me sometimes and go, Josh, you can hear me, but you're not listening. And he'd point at me like this. I was like, I don't know what you're talking about, which maybe was his point. But he'd go, you can hear me, but you're not listening. And what he was saying was, hey, I know your ears work. I know you hear my words, but I can tell you're not actually processing my words because otherwise you'd be acting differently, right? It's a simple concept. You've had this with your friends or your significant other. When they're kind of on their phone, like kind of scrolling and you're talking to them and they keep giving that every six seconds, "Mm -hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yep, mm mm-hmm. And you go, hey, I know you hear me. And because you're good like that, I bet you could repeat what I just said, but I know for a fact you're not listening to me right now, right, that's like so frustrating. It's similar to this text in Matthew chapter seven, Jesus sort of gets at this point. He tells a story of two people that hear his words. And if you remember this, he goes, man, one person is like someone building their house on the sand and the other is like someone building their house on the rock. He goes, people can hear my words, but where someone becomes wise is where their hearing becomes practicing. He goes, when you hear my words and you obey my words, that's the person that builds their house on the rock. When the storms of life come, that house will stand. What he's saying is, a wise person and a foolish person both can sit under my teaching and hear the best sermon of their life. That is not what distinguishes a wise person from a foolish person. What distinguishes the two is obedience. I was reading this book, recommended to me by Carly, our kids pastor, shout out Carly. It's called The Listening Life. It says, in Latin, the word obey would not exist without the word listen. Listen. The word we call obedience literally means to listen from below. Meaning obedience is a deep listening, a listening of the whole person, a hearing with your heart and with your arms and your legs. So they're saying is hearing is not only of the ears, but of the arms and the legs. Faith is not only of the brain, but of the body. To listen in the New Testament meant not to just listen with your ears, but with your legs, with your hands. this reminds me when Jesus says, If you love me, obey my commands. They should be in the same breath. I'm not asking for your emotions. I am, I'm asking for your emotions in part, but I'm asking for your obedience. That's how you show me you love me. There's this explicit interconnectedness in Scripture. It's understood from the get-go when it's written between love and obedience, faith and works, and they cannot be divorced without undermining the power of the Christian life with Jesus. The New New Testament understands that listening is not simply auditory. Faith is not simply belief. It is an act of the body, listening and responding. They live and they breathe together, get together. (laughs) They live and they breathe together. They're two sides of the same coin. And this is the gospel. This is always how it was intended. And the minute that we see obedience and hearing divorced, the minute we see our message in our life divorced, it just gets awkward. It gets weird. You've probably been there before. I, Leah was telling me, uh, the, the, uh, this was actually a few months ago, she said a coworker came up to her and the coworker's not a believer, and said, Christians are confusing. Like really, like I, there's some things I thought they didn't do, but when I'm out on the weekends, it seems like they do exactly what I do. And they, they weren't being critical or harsh, they were actually genuinely going, I don't quite understand your message and your life is different the gap doesn't make sense just like telling someone who's hungry to be full without actually feeding them it doesn't make sense faith without works is dormant it's useless it's dead and out of this simple breakdown in verses 14 through 17 James is going to give us a bit of a warning in verses 18 and 19 says but someone will say you have faith and I have works but show me your faith apart from your works, and I'll show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. And this is where James is gonna give us a warning. You're like, James, are you comparing me to a demon right now? He's like, no, but sorta. <laughs> like, I need you to understand this. It's, it's similar in that Matthew 7 that both a foolish person and a wise person can hear the words of Jesus. Like, demons believe in Jesus. There's multiple moments in the Gospels where demons, will, a demon-possessed person, will walk up to Jesus and go, "We know who you are, Jesus, the Most High. We know who you are. Please don't hurt us." <laughs> they literally they beg for mercy. It's like the belief is there, but they're still demons. And that's the point James is trying to make. Like belief is just a piece. It's an essential piece like through faith salvation comes into our life. So James is not discrediting or making light of belief. It's an incredible step. It's an important step. But the Christian life it takes place at the bottom of your heart. Like the abundant life of knowing the heart of God, walking in deep friendship with God comes when our belief results in a change of our actions over a lifetime. That's when it takes root. Like, there is more. And I want to say this to you, believer, or maybe non believer. If you've ever sat back and went, there has got to be more to the Christian life than like Sundays at 10 around a live stream. There's got to be more than like this weird kind of small group where conversation is sometimes good and sometimes awkward. Like, there's got to be more than just like opening the Bible app and reading a daily devotion. And all of those things are good. But I believe James is going, there absolutely is more. And it's all-consuming. Like, he's trying to help us. He's not trying to shame us. He's trying to help us desperately not to shortchange what the gospel has made available for our life, our entire lifetime. Like, I gotta help you. You're so quick to make it small and put it in a little tiny itty-bitty box of like, I'm a Christian. That's who I am. You like, no, there's so much more. And it comes when your message and your life are one and the same. Faith is at its best when action is with it. I mean, let's apply this to other things that aren't just simply Christian, right? Faith in a chair is sitting in it. Faith in a car is driving it. Faith in a roof is living under it. Faith in a tree is climbing it, reading underneath its shade, or hanging an eno from it. Faith in Jenny's ice cream is buying Brambleberry Crisp or their seasonal watermelon taffy, which I highly recommend. Faith in Patagonia is wearing their five-inch Strider Pro short. It's the best short available. They've dominated the side pockets. I have faith in those shorts, so I wear them. Faith in Christopher Nolan is knowing that the minute Tenet came out, I will see it in IMAX because that's how he filmed it. He's a great director, and it was intended to be seen that way. Now, if you don't want to sit in the chair and you don't want to drive the car, that's totally your prerogative. But we cannot make, make no mistake about it. Thinking the car can drive and driving the car are two different things. Like thinking Jenny's taste super good and putting brambleberry crisp in your mouth and feeling that burst of berry and sugar and cream. Like those are two very different scenarios, right? In fact, some of you might say nothing changes if I just think it's good. But a lot changes when I experience that it's good. I remember going to this event and now I was being this is kind of hard to articulate. I was being trained to train trainers. Rewind that later. But I was it's like the inception of training. So um, I was being trained to help train people that would train people. And I remember seeing this poster on the wall. And it said, you remember 20% of what you hear and 30% of what you see. Or maybe it was the other way, 20% of what you see. 30%. But anyway, 20 to 30% of what you see and hear. And then it said, you remember 80% of what you experience. Within your DNA, every human was made for experience. That's when we really get it in, the, in our minds. That's when it really sinks in, and that's what James is getting at. To see and to hear is such a small, it's just like such a small part of it. It comes alive when we experience it, when our works take place. Faith in Jesus is actively surrendering to him. Faith in his word is participating and reading and obeying when it gives instruction. Faith in the Holy Spirit is listening and responding to him. Faith must involve an outward response to be at its best. Now this applies to every area. Like if our heart was a home, so often we go, Jesus, you can take this room, but Jesus doesn't view our heart as an Airbnb. He wants the whole property. So this applies to everything our thought life, our habits, our spending, our attitude, but I sense that the Holy Spirit has been for a couple of weeks now churning my heart in a specific area for us, that that faith and works would be in the same breath, would be one in the same. You know, in a city like Nashville, there's this, this weird thing that can take place in a place where it's relatively hospitable to Christianity, right? Like, it's not super crazy to be a Christian in Nashville. In fact, some might even say it's common, normal. But there's this weird thing that can take place where family units or, or friend groups or coworkers, they can reduce their faith to just professing to be a Christian, to tuning in on Sundays, but then divorcing the Christian life from literally every other part of their life. Like prayer is, is more of a private thing. It's relegated to Sunday. Scripture reading is reduced to like Bible studies when the season is right. Worship is only when there's a mic and a crowd. It's separated. Work and books and shopping and bars and sports and eating out, like, that's all completely separate from the Christian life. It's oil and water, basically. And I just wonder for a moment if your family unit, like you and your spouse, or if you have kids, or, or your friends, or, or your coworkers, or your roommates, like whoever you're actively around, I wanna ask you this. Do you expect the poor to be served and who you spend your time with? Do you expect the lost to come and find Jesus and who you're actively around? Do you expect that? Or is that just my job? Is that just my pastor's job? Or is that just for the guy that preaches those amazing sermons on the podcast or they lead those amazing worship gatherings on Spotify? Like, who is it? Do you expect to see that? And I just, I see like the Holy Spirit is like leading me to go, it doesn't have to be awkward anymore or weird anymore to incorporate the all encompassing life of Jesus in your life and the people you spend your time with, whoever that is, whether it's one, 10, or 100 people. That the ways of Jesus were not meant to be compartmentalized, that there's more than just your Sunday at 10 or your Wednesday at 7. He wants your Tuesday at 2 and your Thursday at 9. He wants every bit of it, and He wants it for your community too, and I just want you to take a few moments. I know it's weird, because I'm on a TV right now in your home, or I'm on your phone. It's just kind of weird to participate with me, but I'm gonna ask you to do it. I want you just to take a moment, and if you need to close your eyes to help you, I want you to imagine a scenario. Close your eyes, picture it. Picture the people you're around the most. And just picture a day where in the same conversation you're talking about the latest movie, your favorite book, your workload, what's stressing you out, and in the same breaths, you're talking about where you're seeing God in Scripture. And you are say, hey, hold on, can we pray for a second? You're just breaking out in spontaneous prayer. Let me just pray that over you. Oh, you're anxious? Okay, like in the middle of Whole Foods. Oh, right, if you're worried about it, let's just stop and pray for a second. Let's invite the Holy Spirit into this. God is with us. He didn't tell us to wait till Sunday to pray together. We can do it right now. Imagine a scenario where there's like this seamless, ebb and flow. There's no longer this weird divide between sacred and secular, where we invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of our everyday life. And I just, I think God is asking us to dream. It is so easy to to put everything in its little box. That's my personality. I like for everything to have its category. But I think Jesus wants his holy, like he wants the Holy Spirit, the helper, the spirit of truth to be in every single category. He wants to overflow that that no longer would we be compartmentalizing faith and life, that those walls would be broken down. That instead of being oil and water, it would just be this free flowing river of surrender to Jesus. I think that's what God wants for us, and it's time to dream. And I believe this is there for you to start asking God, what could it look like for prayer and scripture and worship? and confession and repentance and serving my city, what can it look like for that all to infiltrate the most normal moments of my life? It is not my job to save Nashville. It's not my job, it's not your pastor's job, it's not the podcast job. It is our privilege as the body of Christ to participate together in bringing heaven on earth. And this will not happen with belief alone. It will happen with belief and with works coming together with our life and our message being one and the same, with that gap being closed forever, for a lifetime. Now, this is going to take some stuff out of us. This is asking things of us, which, spoiler, Jesus does that. He tends to ask things of us because he's our Lord and our Savior and our best friend. So there's two things that, there's two words that came to my mind. And those words are openness and ownership. And so right now, I hope, my prayer is that the Holy Spirit is, is speaking to you. There's some things that are churning up in your heart. And and I just want to tell you on the front end, it's going to require a lack of defensiveness on your end. Don't be defensive with the Holy Spirit, with whatever God is doing. God is so good. And I just felt this. I was driving a couple days ago talking to my wife about what I was going to preach about. And I started preaching to her by accident because I got really fired up. (laughs) I I started preaching like, when James writes this stuff, guys, he's not threatening you. Jesus, when he comes in and he asks for you to to take some things out of your life or to start adding some things in your life, Jesus is, his posture is never to shame you or threaten you. Now, you might feel a little bit of him threatening your sin, which he will do that 10 out of 10 times. He does not like things that harm his kids. So when he asks for things to be removed or when you sense him calling you to something deeper and you know it might be awkward or weird, you need to know Jesus is on your side. He is for you. The Holy Spirit is named the helper. He longs to help you, and so stay open, because you'll feel, as Jesus starts to do a little spiritual surgery in your heart, you'll feel yourself going, no, 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 not there. Not that room, that door's locked. He's going, no, 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 I want the whole house. I've come to give you life and life abundantly, but I need your heart, I need all of you, stay open. So first, I just ask you to be open, and secondly, I invite you to, be, to take ownership. A lot of times when, when you hear teachings like this, it's like calling you higher. It's easy to kind of look around and go, I wonder which one of our friends in the living room is gonna own this conversation. Or a lot of times when you get when you're when you're complaining about like the spiritual temperature of your family unit, or maybe your coworkers that seem that say they're Christian but they're living differently, and you're going, when is someone gonna do something? It might be you. That angst that you feel, that gap that you don't appreciate, that might be the Holy Spirit going, Hey, own it. Start that conversation. Say that word. Start that one habit and stick with that habit. Come sunshine or rain and just see what God can do. Maybe it's as simple as going every day or every week, I'm going to ask my friends, hey, where have you seen God today? Where have you seen him at work? And for the next year, I'm just going to set an expectation that God is moving and and where, where have we seen him? But whatever it is, I invite you to take ownership. And as you do, and you have questions, don't let that deter you. Seek counsel. It's like the story of my life. Everything I say, I feel like I stole from someone else who loved me and led me well. Seek counsel. If you don't know someone that you can look up to and ask really good questions to, share at ethoschurch.org. Shoot us an email. I would love to talk with you. I would love for us to come together and pray and ask the Holy Spirit, what can it look like for my faith, my life, my message, my works to come together and be one and the same and for us to discern together what it like for you and your friends or your family unit or your coworkers? You do not do this alone. Seek wise counsel. And lastly, as you take ownership of this, please remember these two words, patience and persistence. Be patient. Abnormal always precedes normal, especially when it's a new normal. When you're trying to start something new, you will feel like the old resisting. And so as you seek to do this in your own life and in your friends or in your family or in your coworkers or you go to the gym with, whatever it is, please do not be discouraged when it feels weird and awkward. That's how it goes every time. But trust the habit Trust the practice because as you keep doing it and it becomes normal, I'm telling you, it will pave the way for the Holy Spirit to transform your life and the people around you. Be patient and be persistent. Keep at it. And so as we go to communion, you might be feeling some, hopefully you don't, but if you feel any despair like, man, this seems hard, what you need to know is we take communion. We take the bread and the cup because Jesus has already done what we could not do. In the place of deepest despair, how do I get relationship with the perfect God as a sinner? Jesus was the perfect life who dies on a cross, resurrection in the grave, to close that gap in the snap of a finger. Faith in Jesus this is what results in salvation. So as we take communion, as you take the bread, as you take the cup, you remember the body and the life and the sacrifice and the resurrection of Jesus going, God, thank you for doing what I cannot do. And as I wrestle with these words from James, inviting me in the morning, I feel maybe a little nervous or a little despair. Help me to remember what you've promised me, that you are with me always, always. And that your Holy Spirit guys, the Holy Spirit of God, right? It's not just like a helpful buddy. It's like the Holy Spirit of the presence of God is in you and around you and will aid you, will always come to your aid as you seek to be more like Jesus. So as you go to communion, two simple questions I'm gonna ask you. First, where is there a gap between what I believe and how I live. Just where's there a gap between what I profess to believe and how I live, where is that? And maybe take some time to be to be quiet in your room with, with other people and, and just ask the Lord that and be honest, don't be defensive, be open, take ownership. And then secondly, what steps am I gonna take today or this week to help close this gap? What can I start doing, what's a simple thing? I would encourage simplicity. What's one simple thing I can do to begin working on closing this gap? guys? I felt nervous this morning because I couldn't possibly articulate the richness of this word, and I don't like that feeling. God has so much more than anything I just said. There is so much more available to you than I could ever put words to. You will begin to discover it today when your faith and your works become one and the same. And I just I pray for trust in your heart. Don't just trust Jesus with today; trust Him with your lifetime. But start with the simple steps. So I'm going to pray. Then um, we can take communion together as a family. Love you guys. I keep wanting to say more, but I just, I love you. And uh, let's pray. God, I thank you. I uh, I just ask, I don't know. I just, I know the barrier of a TV and speakers and a room full of people watching. And it's just kind of weird. I thank you so much that your Holy Spirit is so above and beyond that and can totally work through those obstacles. And so I pray, God, is for those that, just sensing like a nudge in their heart, like, oh, this is an area where you're, you're asking me to step into something or to give up something or whatever it is. Give them courage and boldness. Give them patience and persistence. I love you, Lord. You're leading us, so you just lead us and, uh, in every room, in, in every park, in every driveway that's watching. Um, God, in Jesus' name, there is permission to do whatever the Spirit's leading in this moment. I pray for awesome conversation, for honesty, for transparency, for boldness. And, uh, yeah, we love you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, let's take communion together.